everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malk and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s, except when we're in flashback month. We're, uh, we're working our way through the 1997 flashback minus one issues. Uh, today we get to take a wild ride, for this podcast at least. We, uh, we're doing a lot of old continuity on this show, but we're stepping into another reality, into the age of apocalypse with the character X-Men. Uh, we'll talk all about uh, Nate Gray uh, as uh, as we get a little farther into the show. Uh, first, I am thrilled to welcome back uh, co-hosts Dayspring and Marcus Nasso, who have both been on my show a few times, and I'm so happy to have you here. And I am honored to be meeting uh, the incredible writer, uh, Mr. Stephen Grant. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, if you'd like, uh, where we might know you from. And today's intro question is, did you ever run away as a kid or or think about running away? This is uh, based on our issue today when uh, little Nate Gray briefly escapes from his stasis pod for a quick adventure around the orphanage. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, let's start uh, with Mr. Stephen Grant. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Uh, I'm uh, ridiculously boring on all these subjects. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I go by whatever any, anybody wants to call me, really. Uh, I'm, you know. I'm horribly straight and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, no, I, I, there, I'm sure there was some point at which I thought about running away from home when I was a kid, but I didn't think about it long enough to remember it now. Uh, I didn't really have any reason to run away from home. My, my home life, I didn't like it, but it wasn't bad enough to run away from. My, my, you know, my parents were okay. They were, I, I, I didn't really have any, uh, great home life dramas that would drive me out of the house. So, you know, so like I say, I, I've had a ridiculously boring life on that in all those counts. So now, Stephen, where would our listeners most know you from? Uh, pro most of them would probably know me from uh, the Punisher miniseries from Marvel in the 1980s. And um, I've done tons of work for tons of people. I've written for DC, Mar Marvel, Dark Horse, Wildstorm, Boom, I'm losing track of first comics. I did work for first comics for many years. Um, IDW, I've, I've done work for pretty much every everybody who's anybody. So, you know, so uh, it's it's all kinds of stuff. Mostly uh, a lot of superhero work. Um, I, I prefer doing crime books. I did a couple crime comics called uh, uh, Badlands, which I did at Dark Horse in the, in the uh, early 90s, and then did a book with Mike Zek in the, at, Wildstorm called uh, Damned at the in the late uh, 90s. I, and I wrote a comic that nobody ever read called um, Two Guns that eventually got made into a movie in 2013 with Denzel Washington and uh, Mark Wahlberg. So, uh, you know, I I have a habit of when I meet people at conventions of them saying, I didn't know until I looked you up. I didn't know you wrote that. And it's like, yeah, I wrote it. I, I wrote something you've read. So, you know, that's all I can say is you may not know me, but you have read my work. So. It's so great to meet you. And I have a lot of questions. Uh, but let's go to another award winning author, uh, Mr. Marcus Nasso. Hi, Marcus Hi. Good to be on here again. I, I love coming on the show. So thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm the writer of Voracious, uh, which was published by Action Lab Comics, and I'm currently writing By the Horns from Scout Comics. 
And uh, for people who don't know, it's an epic sci-fi fantasy adventure about a heartbroken warrior and her telepathic wolf friend who want to murder all the unicorns in the world for destroying <laughs> their lives. And uh, the main character, Elodie, can rip off unicorn horns and merge them together to form magic weapons. So uh, By the Horns, Dark Earth, number seven, which is the 15th issue in the series, comes out on March 15th, so pretty soon. And then we just launched a Kickstarter a few days ago for a deluxe hardcover edition, and it funded in 23 hours, which is amazing. And, uh, and the backers have already crushed two stretch goals on it, so I'd say it's going pretty well. And uh, so, yeah, and then I'm also a host on the Metalheads podcast, uh, which comes out monthly. And uh, we're about to record episode 136 pretty soon. Amazing. Did you um, ever run away as a kid? I never ran away. I love my parents. I had a really good relationship. But, you know, as a kid with a pretty active imagination, there were times where I just I thought about taking a, a day trip. So we lived in the woods and there was a railroad tracks right behind my house. So I would go out in the woods all the time. I, I made a canoe out of a, a tree one time, even though there's no water around. And uh, I always thought about just taking those tracks to see where they go because I watched that movie Stand By Me. You remember that one? Yeah. Um, and uh, I love that movie. I still love that movie. It's still one of my favorite movies. But the kids take a, a trip on the railroad tracks to find this dead body. And so... When I saw that, I thought, oh, I should do that. Maybe I won't find a dead body, but I'll find something fun. Fantastic. Uh, Marcus Lund is also horribly straight, uh, whereas Dayspring and I are horribly gay. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me turn it over to Dayspring gay. next. What's up? Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I'm a huge Nate Gray fan, so I'm so honored to be here. And obviously with you, Steven, you wrote those final issues of oh. Nate. So I have so so many questions for you. But my pronouns are he, him. And I, I don't know if you would know me, but we have a podcast called Power of X-Men, where we interview the actors, video game directors, writers, editors, cosplayers, fellow podcasters, people who are stands. It's just this online community where everyone's welcome. As long as you love the X-Men, that's all we, we chat about and, and go off on lots of rants. In terms of have I ever run away from home or did I ever run away from home as a kid? I did, actually. And I was just talking about it this weekend with my co-host Flink. We, uh, I was at his at his job at Heritage Comics, and he has a Channel Six April O'Neil van with the figure. And I remember seeing her in 1993, something like that. And I asked my parents if they would buy it for me, and they said no. I got so angry i went home i packed up like a little backpack with like my captain planet toys and i marched right out on calle ocho i'm like my abuela had to go find me so i did in fact run away from home wow. because i did not get an april an april o'neill figure that's how bratty i was and i already had like five <laughs> april o'neill figures too that was that was my parents argument was like you already have one with real hair you have the mm -hmm. cat one you have the original one and i was like no i want the one with the green jumpsuit that comes with the van the channel six van <laughs> how many do you so have I now stormed out of my house none none they're all they're all <laughs> they're all gone so it was all for naught it was, was all for nothing man but <laughs> You know, I, it's, realizing... I, got, I got triggered this weekend. 
I was realizing the new character Escapade created by Charlie Jane Anders looks a lot like April O'Neil. Uh, if you guys are familiar with that character in the comics. Uh, lastly, I am a Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns as well. I, uh, I'm the host of this show. I'm a former Marvel comics handbook writer, uh, and, uh, an author of various other things. Uh, I did try running away once. I think my mom only spanked me one time when I was a kid. I was like seven. And I, I was not a very dramatic kid, but this time I was. I think I must have badmouthed her or something, and I got spanked. And then I remember sitting in my room and writing out, like, a whole page, like, goodbye, you're never going to see me again, and you're going to, like, wish you had never done this, and you're going to miss me your whole lives. And I remember, like, packing a backpack with essentials, which for me was, like, paper and crayons and probably a couple toys. And then I just went to bed. I never ran away. So that was, uh, that was my one dramatic attempt. But my little sister, who will maybe kill me for telling this story, uh, did run away once when she was five. She took a purse and some flip-flops, and that was it. She went down the street naked in her flip-flops and purse. We need to have her on this show. Oh, she's uh, she's wonderful. I would love to have Sherry on. Uh, so Sherry, if you're listening, you're welcome for that story. Sherry Malkin uh, Lane. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, focusing on Stephen for the first little while here, Stephen, I... Uh, I know I could ask you questions that many, many people have asked you. Uh, we're not going to cover the Punisher Limited series, your Omega the Unknown work in Defenders. You're known for so many horror stories at Marvel. I want to keep it a little bit X-Men focused. What because, horror stories am I known for? Oh, lots of, uh, lots of like werewolf by night and like no, different. I, I only wrote like two things of werewolf by night. And, I, you know, anyway. Yeah, when I read through your IMDb, there's a lot of uh, there was not 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 horror genre, but horror characters used in different places. But I um, want to focus it a little bit on X Men stuff because uh, yeah. you you have a surprising number of uh, X Men questions or, or excuse me X Men content on your resume. Uh, if we can start very quickly, you uh, you wrote one of my favorite Avengers stories of all time, or were a part of a team of writers with Mark Grenwald and others. Uh, called the Yesterday Quest, involving yeah, that way I co-plotted that. David Michelini actually did the dialogue, but Mark and I co-plotted that because he didn't want to deal with it. So he took a this vacation is... for three months and left us to plot it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the infamous story where Wanda Maximoff uh, gets possessed by Chiton, and right. they're at Mount Wondegore, and everything goes dark. It's kind of her first foray into the dark arts a little bit, if you will. Do you have uh, some memories of that story you'd like to share with us? Um, well, yeah, um, yeah, it's hard to get to specifics more. Well, Mark and I had been doing co-plotting for a while. Mark, Mark and I, when I, Mark was already at Marvel when I got there and, uh, and we kind of bonded over both coming from Wisconsin because he came from Appleton and I grew up in Madison and, uh, and we both more or less lived uh, on the Upper West Side at the time. For a long time, I was crashing and Roger Stern's apartment because on his couch because there was um, no way to get an apartment in Manhattan, just like today. And <laughs> so um, I just ended up like talking concepts with people all the time about, you know, everything. And Mark and I ended up co-writing stuff. Uh, Mark asked me to start working with him on to start co-plotting some Spider-Woman stuff with him. And <clears throat> Somehow I got known among a little clique as a good plot guy, which I'm not exactly sure why, because I don't think that's ever really been my strong suit. But, but you know, I had lots of quirky little ideas for Marvel Comics. And uh, 
<clears throat> excuse me. And at any rate, at some point, Roger was the editor on the Avengers and David Migalon, they When Jim Shooter left his run on the Avengers, there was this whole Wanda Quicksilver origin story thing. Um, that he basically dumped in David Michelinie's lap that was that kept going, you know, people kept going, well, when are you going to get back to this? When are you going to get back to this? And David really didn't want to deal with it. And oddly, this is the same way I ended up writing the Omega thing, too, um, in that uh, the writer on that book, Ed Hannigan, just did not want to deal with it because he knew a landmine when he saw it. And... <laughs> And uh, this was kind of the same thing as that it was just too much work and too much too much continuity and just too much stuff. He wasn't interested in which I can fully understand. I don't blame him. Uh, and being in the position he was, David figured, well, OK, I will just take that three months off and catch up on other stuff. And, you know, Roger can get who he wants to plot it. So he, so Roger brought in. I don't remember. I think. Roger asked Mark and Mark said, well, you know, we should do it together. And I think that I, as I recall, that's how I ended up on it. But then we just started like throwing everything at the wall. We started going through all the old stuff and lining up things and making notes. And once we got one thing, like I think Mark said, well, we should. Well, at some point, I think the dark hold had been tied to Wondergore Mountain, some in some obscure reference in marvel and that's how how that's this how this thing just accumulated and um that's how so that's how we got to the stories little things accumulated and we each brought in bits and pieces and then we got to the um i actually created thone for a and it's pronounced thone by the way it looks like it's pronounced kathan but it's technically pronounced thone because it's a it's a legit word i have never heard that from anyone it's it's, it's taking a, notes now it's a legit it's a legit word from greek mythology and uh technically it's thonic i mean the the, the word that you'll run across mostly is thonic not thone but but um and I think a lot of people go like Catan because of like Katan. Yeah, well, that's, that's how I thought it was pronounced for a long time. And then I found out it was pronounced Thone. Amazing. Anyway, go ahead. And uh, anyway, so I brought him in to be, because I just had this idea. What if the guy who is the the main contaminate, you know, the, the main um, animating force for Earth was the original main animating force was actually evil you know i thought that's a great bit we'll do that let's let's talk them into that and um i brought in the thing about quicksilver and meg and uh scarlet witch being magneto's uh children although my idea was that the readers would find out but none of the characters would ever find out that lasted about a month and uh <laughs> and you know basically we just slapped it together we really had no idea what we it's it's like there's a line in Citizen Kane where he's asked what he knows about running a newspaper. And he says, I don't know anything about running a newspaper. I just try everything I can think of. And that's pretty much how we put that story together. We just slapped so much stuff together in that story. And it just accumulated and accumulated until it got to this thing. And uh, and I, I actually designed the or came up. I didn't physically design it, but I John Byrne designed it. But I came up with the design concept for the third issue. Um, for the cover, for the cover for where they're all hanging upside down. That was my idea. That got us in trouble with Stan Lee. And 
because someone's feet was blocking the logo. And in those days, it was all spinner racks. So if they're flipping through the logo, uh-huh. through the spinner racks, you don't want anything blocking, anything remotely keeping them from seeing that logo on the spinner rack, from just registering that logo. And so Stan was not pleased about that. But, you know, I didn't hear about it for long. I didn't hear about it directly from Stan. It was passed down to me. But, um, and, uh, you know, that's, how things were done in those days you just you hung around the office and you got jobs (laughs) (laughs) the first uh the first of many times that wanda was driven mad but it's such a good story i'm going to ask you about three random just pulled out of a hat stories that involved x-men characters that you did and if you you don't remember these it's completely okay because these are these are completely unrelated they're just three stories that i happen to love from my own youth one of them is marvel team up number 90 which is a team up between spider-man and the beast they're fighting i remember that story yeah they're fighting killer shrike and this bad guy that's only shown up once but i found him so scary as a kid named the modular man he was actually from some black and white magazine some oh yeah i think he was from a backup strip in the hulk black and white magazine or something some black and some 70s black and white magazine he was oh uh you're you're talking about rampaging hulk yeah yeah Yeah. huh I think uh, be, was, I think it was that I might be wrong on that, but but that's where he came from as I pulled him out of that. Yeah, do you have any memories of that story you did with Mike Fosberg? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, Al Milgram just said uh, I'd go into Al's office and he'd say, you know, do a story, and I Al, I think Al assigned me to that one, gave threw that one at me, and um, I think. I don't think it was my idea to use the beast. I think some because normally they'd say, "Well, use a character, use this character or that character." Um, and so basically, I just went and would thought I'd have fun with the beast because at that point they were they were kind of playing him as a womanizing gadabout. He's he's been through <laughs> a lot of changes over the years, uh-huh. and uh, oh, he has. Now he's a war criminal. <laughs> Now, now, he, now he's a gay war criminal, I think. Last, <laughs> last I saw, he was gay, but he I don't know. He just pretended to be gay once. No, no, <laughs> even worse. He pretended to be gay. That's how much we hate him here. Oh, okay. okay. I mean, I, I haven't been paying that much attention. That's just things pop up in passing. and I He thought, wanted media attention. Yeah, okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, and uh, I just kind of threw a story together. I mean, it, it wasn't, I was just trying to play with, have fun with the beast as much as possible. I didn't really care that much about the story. I got to say, I got to say, you know, you got assignments and the thing was, and I just explained this to someone else, not too, not too, in those days, there were two good reasons to take any job offered. One was you had rent to pay and Comics didn't pay that much, so you didn't pass up any money. And two, if you said you don't want to do stories, they would stop asking you to do stories. Mm. So what when they asked you to do a story, didn't matter whether you had any feeling for the for the concept or the characters or whatever. You know, you did mm. the story. Um, and uh, you know, Spider-Man, I liked writing, but it was Marvel team up. You couldn't really do anything with him. I mean, he he was a prop in his own book and that thing. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't use you couldn't develop any character stuff with him because it would interfere with stuff they were doing in his real books. And so, you know, you got to play with the uh, with characters you didn't uh, normally play with in the in the 
secondary characters and thing. And uh, I thought the Beast was a fun character, you know, basically at the at the time because he was more fun loving than most Marvel characters at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of tried to play him as fun loving and. Uh, and uh, there's actually a hidden dirty joke in that that no one ever got. And what was uh, it? <laughs> I, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to figure it out. Reread it. We're going to reread that and find it. Wait, Stephen, I, I I wanted to ask a question. It, it, yeah. We were talking about how back in the day, you know, comics didn't pay that much, and you sort of just took the job because you need to pay rent. Right. But the industry has changed so much recently, especially the the story you did yes, on Wanda and those origins. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it, fair in terms of money, you know, I think given the rise of the MCU, given the rise of Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch, I mean, all eyes are on comics now. And that is seen as a really great job to have, which is, you know, different from what it was back in the past. Uh, what's your question? I, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just curious. Like, what is what are your thoughts on the changing of the industry from how well, I don't think I don't think now. it's changed that much because you still have to work a, an awful lot unless you've you've put in a lot of years. I mean, I don't have to work that hard, but right now I'm in a position of that instead of getting a lot of tiny checks very frequently, I get fairly large checks very infrequently. So, you know, I, I don't, but for most people, it's still not a place you can make a lot of money unless you get lucky and like end up writing Superman or something, you know. Um, most people still have to struggle quite a bit. And, you, you know, you can do your, you can do independent. I, I mean, the great thing these days is you've got outlets that you can do creator own comics in, which you didn't have when I started in, in comics. And but you don't make much money off that on your comics generally you make the, your money elsewhere unless you unless you get lucky mm-hmm. you know i can and attest to so, that so <laughs> luck is luck is still very much a, a situ uh you know a requirement and if you you can you can make a lot of money in comics now whereas it was all you could you could do it then but it was a lot more difficult but it's still very difficult in different ways now if you get to the point where you're making money you can make a lot of money but getting to the point where you're making money is still pretty hard and it's not something you can guarantee on a regular basis especially when there's so many comics out there well yeah i mean now there's like fifty thousand comics out there i mean Mm -hmm. you, you go through i mean you know previews is like an inch and a half thick and no one ever goes past the first 40 pages so yeah so, so second random story I want to ask you about. 1983, it's Marvel Fanfare number seven. You uh you're working with Joe Barney and it's a Hulk versus oh, Unis the Untouchable story. And it's heartbreaking because in my mind, Blob and Unis the Untouchable are I, I know they're often portrayed as just best friends back then, but I think of them as secret boyfriends. <laughs> and okay. Blob is so sad because Eunice is dying, and it breaks my heart. But it's uh it's a really wonderful story. Uh any memories you'd like to share there? Yeah, that was one where, um, yeah, Al Milgram was the editor of Marvel Fanfare, and he wanted to, he had a, uh, this guy named Joe Barney, who Joe and I are pretty good friends now, but um, I didn't know him from Adam then, and but he said he's got this guy, Joe Barney, who wants to do a Hulk story, so would I write a Hulk story for him? Now, the Hulk was never my favorite character to write, but um, Al said, and it was actually the plot is mostly Al, because Al said, well, 
you know, I want you to, why don't you do something with Eunice and the Blob and have Hulk fighting Eunice and the Blob? Because I think at some point Hulk had fought both of those guys, but not at the same time. And, um, you know, that that was always kind of a, just a fun con. For some reason, the Blob was the first issue of X, X-Men I read as a kid. And I was never a huge X-Men fan as a kid, but the first one was the second issue that the blob with the return of the blob i think was issue seven or eight of the x-men and um for some reason i always had this soft spot for the blob and i don't know why but it was just it was just such a weird character to me but you know i was more than happy to write that and i had a lot a lot of fun writing that and working out the um al basically came up with the it was al who came up with the idea of having um, and I forget why they got in contact. Was it? Just, did the Hulk just stumble across them, or did they? Yeah, they were living. Them? They were living in a carnival, and Hulk right. kind of pushed his way through. Right. Mean, so uh, the Hulk yeah. just crosses paths with them. Right. I couldn't remember whether that or whether it was that or whether they um, went looking for him for some reason. But, but yeah, and it's just to do a story about two people who are thought of as villains, but they're extremely loyal to each other, and you know, very very great friends and and are doing each other are basically fighting the hulk for friendship is you just, um you just confirmed they were gay you said they were doing each other thank you <laughs> i think you you misunderstood but it it doesn't really matter to me if they are that's fine <laughs> if you want to read it that way it's i've got no problem with it um but um you know and it was just the idea of doing this this story that hinged on the friendship between these two villains that i thought yeah i really liked the idea of this story and then when joe jewett it was it was just uh, the art on it was just fantastically good and somebody has has converted that into a mini movie i mean they just took the panels and made a movie out of it i forget <laughs> it's online someplace i forget where but uh, but it's uh, it resonated with an awful lot of people it's heartbreaking. Um, this is the this is one of the times when Eunice's powers are killing him. He can't breathe and he can't eat, and Blob's the only person there for him. And for I think for a lot of queer people, and this is one of those reasons that that story stands out to me. Even though this is written prior to the AIDS crisis, I think there's an element of so many queer people who died during the AIDS crisis who had people show up for them when they were ill. And yeah, I know I, I know that wasn't the intention, but that's one of the reasons. I never thought of thought of it like that before, yeah. but I can see that completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also wrote uh for 90s kids, you also wrote Spider-Man the Mutant Agenda, which is a oh, Spider-Man X-Men crossover. <laughs> Tell us the oh, story okay. behind that one. Well, I'm, you know, I got a call from Danny Fingeroth. I was doing a couple of jobs for Danny Fingeroth and he it's at some point somebody up at Marvel, maybe it was Stan himself, got the idea for um got the idea of doing this crossover between the comic, the daily comic strip and the comic books. And so I end up on a, on a um, conference call with Danny, Stan, um, Jay Kinney, is that his name? Whoever the head of King Features Syndicate was at the time. Jay Kinney, I think it was. And we have this like two hour conversation about this and uh, everything's going cool. And it's like, OK, well, we'll do that. And the whole concept behind the thing is that it was supposed to be this going on in the comics. And then it would go over to the comic strip and run through that consecutively for 
in between and then would continue in the next issue of the comic and then do that again and then final end up in the uh, the next the final issue of the comic and that was fine um and i so i said you know they left it to me to plot it out which i did and you know and then it got you know and everything is going fine and then suddenly out of the blue they go um Oh, and we were originally going to use all of the X-Men in the X-Men office, um, kibosh that and said, and said, well, but you can use the beast. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, okay, fine. You know, and I mean, it didn't really matter to me one way or the other. And I was actually grateful that they, that I wasn't using a lot of X-Men because the fewer characters you have to keep track of, the better. And uh, anyway, so then right before we're about to sign, I'm on, I think I was going into New York, flying into New York. I was living in Seattle at the time, and I was think I was flying into New York from um, for a some sort of story conference with someone. And I'm at the airport, and I get a phone call from Danny Fingeroth, who says, well, they've just changed the whole thing, and it's we're going to be running parallel the story parallel instead of crossing it over because they worked at a, apparently they put this idea toward the toward the papers that syndicate the comic strip, and pretty much every editor and every paper freaked out because it would because they didn't like the mechanics of forcing readers to go buy comic books to under to um, be able to follow the story. And yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's surprised nobody thought of that before. It didn't occur to me, but it wasn't really my uh, my field. So you know, um, but at any rate, so they so then it got squashed so that there is a so that they ran the we ran the th the three issues and then they ran it in the um, comic strip parallel to the three issues of Stan's basic basic interpretation of it. I think he took my plot and whittled it down to newspaper size, and uh, and so that was that was a real fun one because suddenly we had to change everything at the last minute and start maneuvering things, and it's like you remember things like that much more than you remember the story content. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, somewhere around here, I don't see it, but I they sent me the collection of the uh, comic strips because they printed them in a portfolio and sent me a copy of it and uh and i think that was also the first i think i think they eventually adapted that to one of the spider-man cartoon shows they did and they did. and oddly gave it turned out that i was the first comic book writer ever to be credited on a spider-man cartoon show for that story so <laughs> i've never yeah. seen it but but i got an email from uh, one of the guys who was working on the show saying, this is what you did. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I don't know what I'm doing with it, but it's interesting. <laughs> that, that opened the door for Chris Claremont to get credited for the Dark Phoenix and Phoenix Saga. In oh, the okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, he may have actually gotten that before. I don't know. This is just on the Spider-Man show. I don't know which one came first. but uh... Yeah, it was a crossover with the X-Men animated series. It was a great episode. Such a great episode. Yeah. But that's what I remember about that specifically. I was never that happy with that because it was kind of one of those things that got out of control fairly easily. But if everyone else is happy with it, that's fine with me. So. <laughs> nice. Well, Stephen, I wanted to ask you about Whisper, even though yes. it's not X-Men. 
Um, I, I just love that book so much. It came out in the late 80s. Uh, uh, early was, 80s, actually. It was ran, it early 80s? It ran from 83 to 91. Okay, right. So there was the Capital Comics, and then it went to First Comics, right? Right. right. Well, there just weren't a lot of female-led superhero books at that time, and they didn't sell well. So for me, Whisper was this breath of fresh air because it was a superhero, political, espionage thriller, but it had a smart lead female character in it, which you just didn't see that much. Well, that, and that I really appreciated it. That was kind of my objective. Well, that came out of a, converse, a couple co different conversations. But one conversation I had with, I think, John Romita Jr. in Marvel offices, right? I noted that that it was a lot more fun to write minority and female characters than to write male character, white male characters, because mm -hmm. white male characters were all expected to act in a certain heroic way. Um, I'll tell you, there there was a story. The first story I ever worked with Mike Zach on was a team up featuring the Shroud, Marvel Spider-Man and the Shroud, where I was playing a little fast and loose with the morality of the Shroud in it, but um, Spider-Man keeps trying to to fight him, and he keeps just slipping through his fingers. And he, it takes place in Los Angeles, and Peter Parker has a plane to catch, and just finally just throws up his hands and says, "Okay, I'm going home." When the Make Ready came in, that was when they printed up the copies. The copies came in before they got the covers put on, just for review on Marvel. And um, when the Make Ready came in, I got called on into Jim Shooter's office and he read me the riot act for having Spider-Man walk away from a fight because Spider-Man does not walk away from a fight. And I'm thinking, what Spider-Man was I reading as a kid then? <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, I didn't, you know, there's no point in arguing it with him. But, but at that point, I just kind of thought, you know, you you get a lot more leeway. They just don't expect as much moral rigidity from from minority and female characters. There's a lot more emotional flexibility and in, in flexibility of response. And so I thought, yeah, I'd like to do I'd like to do a character who does that. And so um, eventually, uh, you know, when it when it came up, uh, Whisper was actually the name of a where they're. They were we were trying to main uh brainstorm new Captain America villains. Um, I think when Roger was taking over writing the book. Mm -hmm. And that was a name I came up with, but nobody used it, so I grabbed it. And um and I kept that on online. I wanted that I wanted to use it as a character. And so uh then it just kind of fit together from there. And then then I was uh take I was going back back to Madison for a couple weeks and grabbed a paperback book on ninjas, on ninjutsu to um, read on the train. And I just thought, man, this is complete bullshit, but there's some stuff I could use in here. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I came up with the idea of her being a fake ninja, because obviously you'd have to be. There's yeah. I, there's no such thing as a non-fake ninja in terms of the the magic ninja. I mean, there were ninjas, but they were basically just messengers, you know. Um, and uh you know for the the magic ninja thing is a myth that was basically developed in in fascist japan in the 1920s for pulp magazines and and so i thought yeah let's work with that and so it just kind of all developed out of that and that uh again just kind of spiraled from there but mm -hmm. uh, 
but is yeah, it something you would uh, come back to and write again, Stephen? Uh, oh yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm uh, I am way behind on finishing a new graphic novel for it. Oh great, that's great. Well, and I saw there's two omnibus editions of it out now. Is yes. the third one gonna gonna come out yeah, to it's complete supposed it? Supposed to be out sometime this year. I don't have any details on it. So okay, they just put them out and tell me when they're out. Basically, so. oh, this I'm is excited. This is just a random question. I assume it's coincidence that you are uh, you have share a name with one of Moon Knight's uh, personalities. <laughs> Absolutely a coincidence. Uh, the character and all of Moon Knight's personalities are named after former college roommates of Doug Mensch. And Stephen Grant was just one of them. So, you know, and it just, just uh, sheer coincidence. And I had nothing to do with it. He had never heard of me at that point. And the fact that you wrote uh, Moon Knight a few times as Stephen Grant is just phenomenal. Well, I wrote it once. I wrote a team up. The first, well, the first story that I did for Marvel, I expected it to be the only story I was doing for Marvel. So I just had a good laugh with it. So I thought, okay, I can use any character for team up. Roger said, write a, you could grab, a, take any character and write it, give me a team up story because he was desperate for team up stories. And I really wasn't expecting to keep doing any other work for Marvel. So I just thought, yeah, OK, let's let's do this. Let's write Moon Knight in the first person. That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just looking for fun. You know, so. Fantastic. I want to take a couple of minutes to introduce the character X-Men to the show. So my my uh, my podcast just started in the early X-Men from the 1960s. So introducing a character like X-Men who came much later is a, is a wildly escalated uh, high concept for uh, <laughs> listeners who have only read the early books. So let's talk about alternate realities for a minute. There is a whole multiverse of realities where every decision made or not made results in a different branch of the timeline. Modern uh, modern listeners are going to be more familiar with stuff like this from the recent Doctor Strange movie. There's all kinds of multiverse stuff happening all over the place. In one alternate future, famously in the X-Men and the Days of Future Past uh, is, is one of the big ones. We meet a character named Rachel Gray Summers, who is the daughter of a different reality's uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey. And she ends up coming to our timeline and is a mainstay in the X-Men. Uh, she goes by Phoenix or Marvel Girl or Prestige or Ascani. She's a huge character. We've also, in uh, we've talked about this character on our show a few times. There's a character named Mr. Sinister, who is an evil geneticist who's obsessed with creating powerful mutant hybrids or chimeras. Uh, he's given himself mutant powers using the DNA of other people. He's telepathic. He's super strong. He regenerates. Uh, he can, he's the guy that connected Havoc to the living monolith for fun. He's also the guy that ran Cyclops' orphanage from behind the scenes. So there's a point in X-Men history where most listeners are going to be familiar. He cloned Jean Grey, created the character Madeline Pryor, and then Madeline Pryor married Cyclops and had a child named Nathan Summers, who ends up becoming the character Cable. And Nathan, the, the genetic power of this character, his mutant power, is such that he is an extraordinarily powerful telekinetic and he has to be given something called a techno-organic virus by Apocalypse, uh, who's the same guy that created Mr. Sinister, by the way. We'll talk more about him another time. Uh, and he gets sent to the future where his sister Rachel's involved. There's a whole thing. We're not going to go into all of those details today. Uh, but the uh, the idea of this character having to be restrained because his power is so great. So at a certain point in the 90s, all of the X-Men books were canceled and they replaced them with different titles. I know this is an area of continuity that Dayspring is extraordinarily familiar with. There's a, there's a version of history out there called the Age of Apocalypse. Professor X died very young. 
Magneto formed the X-Men and Apocalypse has taken over the world. And in this version of the world, Mr. Sinister is just running rampant. There's no one holding him in check. He is boiling people down into genetic soups and creating whatever he wants to. And he has used the DNA of a evil Cyclops who has long hair and one eye and a short-haired redhead Jean Grey. And he has given them a child that he names Nathaniel Grey. Now, at the end of the Age of Apocalypse, he ends up coming back to the main reality as a character named X-Man. So at this time in continuity, we have this crazy Summers everything, mysterious Summers brothers, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But we've got the character Rachel floating around, the character Cable floating around, his clone Strife. And then they bring in this young version of Nate Gray, who's not quite the same. He's young, he's 19-ish. And he has no TO uh, techno-organic virus. So he has these insane telekinetic and telepathic abilities that raise him to a level of it's almost hard for him to contain his power and fit in with normal people. It's a version of the Superman story. When most of my peers were lusting after girls on Baywatch, I was lusting after Nate Gray because he's drawn so hot in the comic books by Roger Cruz. He's enormous enormously handsome uh now dayspring i know you're a huge fan of x-man uh do you want to tell us a little bit about your love of this character yeah i started reading x-man when i was in high school i never objectified him he never did it for me like that way but <laughs> i relate it so much to the character being wayward and having a power within him that was consuming him and he just spoke to me he was this young Wayfarer going through the Marvel Universe, discovering the Marvel Universe as he was going through it. He ran into Onslaught, he ran into Rogue, he ran into the Avengers, he was in New York for a time. And, you know, I was about probably 15, 16 when these comic books were coming out. I was learning how to drive, I was listening to Blink-182, I was getting <laughs> to know myself. So, whereas before, like, uh, some of the X-Men... And I said this the other day, like when I was growing up watching the X-Men animated series, someone like Jubilee felt old to me because I was 10, she was 14. And that age difference at that at that time felt very big to me. But Nate was the first character I actually read an entire series where I was able to empathize and sort of see myself in that character and some of the obstacles he was going through. I just I loved his continuity so much i loved everything that happened with the age of apocalypse i love his ties to gene gray and steven i loved it when you and mark did the revolution era i'm sad it, it was it would be his end but i just remember that reboot for the character coming and absolutely being wild about it as it was happening oh, so nate gray very quickly his title ran for 75 issues he's still around in the comics we're not going to talk about his wild history but good lord is it complicated uh, he's a character again he's known as x-man which is like the archetype of the x-men in its own way there was a certain point where the i think sales were probably down a little bit they brought warren ellis into the book to uh to shake it up something they did quite often uh, Warren Ellis, of course, and we're not going to spend time on this today, is a very controversial writer. He's very famous, but he has a really wild and uncomfortable history uh, that we're not going to delve a lot into. Uh, but Stephen, I know you worked uh, intimately with, well, I assume intimately, with Warren at the end of the X-Men series, and then you wrapped up the series by yourself. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about your history with Nate Gray. Well, uh, that is my history with Nate Gray. I had, had never read the book before Warren. Warren was brought in to do this this 
take three books called the Counterex books. I think was it J? I think Jason Liebig was the um, was the editor at the time. Yeah, and, and a quick side note: Jason Liebig's coming on my show in a few weeks. I'm really good. well. Say hi to Jason for me. I, I, will, I, I will. I talk to him on Twitter and yeah, fairly frequently. He's now a big candy guy. So, and uh, but, <laughs> a literal um, candy. He has a show about candy. Yeah, That's what we mean. Candy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't get it. I mean, everybody's into candy. Come on. I mean, we all love candy. <laughs> and um, anyway, so he brought War. He asked Warren to revamp three of the X books because the sales were starting to fall. This is the mid, uh, well, latish, um, the the late '90s, and all the Marvel sales were starting to collapse. This is right before they were they were going into bankruptcy, and um, and so he asked Warren to revamp the books and warren was overseeing the revamps but he didn't really want to write them so he brought in different people to write them and he asked me to write x-man and uh the only thing that he told me about x-man is that he's a mutant the mutant shaman which i thought well that's that's uh strange enough to be um to be workable and uh i had never read any i never outside of the one that i read for this show i have still never read any of the earlier x-man stuff yeah, when uh, I first when I first pitched this episode to Steven, he emailed me back like, "Yeah, we can talk about X Men, but I've never read it." <laughs> like I've only read my stuff on it, but but the I I, I like the idea, I like the concept of a character who cannot who of an impossible character, because this is a guy who is the lone survivor of a world that never existed. Yeah. So, or one of the lone survivors, I guess there's like four of them, but he's. He's a lone survivor. He's a survivor of a world that never existed, and I thought that was a a terrific, impossible concept. So, and I like the idea of doing an impossible man, a man who who can't ex who can't exist and who doesn't exist. And so, uh, and we bring that into the uh, into the comic itself several times during the run, during my run that he's. Uh, it gives him sort of a special privilege because he's he's not exactly connected to the world while he while also being intimately connected to the world. And I just thought the whole idea of being a shaman for mutants was a an interesting thing to work with. It took a little while to work it out, but uh but you know, and also having a guy who's basically all powerful and can do anything that opens up a lot of material. So you know well, it was, the shaman aspect worked so well and it's still part of the character to this day is it and yeah yeah yeah. Um, oh, yeah yeah it was still leaned into i mean he's in another reality right now but during the age of x-man it, it leaned heavily into his shaman identity uh, and also when he huh? just just to interject really quickly steven they did a really uh it, i don't know if it was very well received but there's some great stories out of it but they did a story a few years ago uh with nate gray where he kind of transforms the world into what he wants it to be, but then it becomes well, yeah, I think I saw a couple issues Yeah, it was called the Age of X Men. There's there's some really okay. good stuff that comes out of it. Uh, but Dayspring, I interrupted you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But you, Age of X Men, there's a lot of the influence of your. I keep wanting to say Mark Wade. You and Warren, <laughs> you and Warren's run on 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 his title. A lot of that influence is still felt with the character today. And in fact, a lot of us. Nate Gray oh, scholars well. make the distinction between 90s Nate and Shaman Nate. And well, uh, that distinction I would make, the rest of it I was unaware of. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do have a couple of questions about that run, but I don't want to yeah. interrupt your flow here, Chad, because you know oh, I got great. some questions. You're great. Go ahead. Okay. 
Okay, so when 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 you came to do the revolution, the counter X stuff, did you know the story? Did you know the series was kind of going coming towards an end? Were you? Oh no, no, no! I, I had to plot it out for another two years after that. Okay, okay. It, it, so that, that you, last that last story was plotted in a hurry. Oh, uh, re- yeah, yeah. Um, and I was I was trying to get Charlie Adler onto the book because I liked working with Charlie, and I had done an X Men story in. Uh, um x-men unlimited a short one and uh, i want really wanted charlie to come out of the book and they wouldn't put him out of the book so he went on to fame on uh walking dead instead (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah no uh we we had no well i mean that was the only reason the book was canceled was that the Marvel went into bankruptcy and then the new regime took over and they were just wiping out stuff and they just basically they just thought there were too many X-Men books and were getting rid of whatever they thought was would be confusing for the audience and that was one of the fatalities. So what what were some unused stories that you had for Nate? Um God, do I remember I I know I was going to take it all internal in the second year mm. and do like, uh, have you ever heard of memory palaces? I have not. Mm, a little, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's this concept that you build this construct in your mind and then create different rooms and, you know. Oh, like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, at the time, it was very little heard of. Now people talk about it all the time. But um, I wanted to do that where someone takes him over by trapping him in his own memory palace, in a memory <sighs> palace inside his head. Or in, I think inside their head, trapping him in their memory palace. And then and I hadn't worked it all out because they canceled the book before that. But that was one of those. And then he has to figure out how to escape from the memory palace. Because, I mean, with a character like that, you got to figure out different ways to deal with the inner. You can't basically deal with him on a physical basis. You can't you can't fight him on a physical basis unless you're really, really a tough guy. Um, so I was going, but I was going to go in turn. The the first year was all basically going further and further into the outer reaches of multiverses and stuff and this was all going to go further and further internally and that's the only thing i really remember about the second year is it was going to get into him personally a lot more well i think uh, oh i'm sorry just bring go ahead no 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 i i have a zillion questions chad please go (laughs) take a couple more and then we'll and then we'll move to our issue review okay so i have a question about two two follow-up questions one You you had an evil Jean Grey counterpart who said she had replaced Maddie Madeline Pryor that was in that run. In in your head, do you know when she replaced that Madeline? Because that that is a huge question. A lot of Madeline Pryor stands have was when did she disappear from the X Man run, and when did she get replaced with that evil Jean? Or did you think it was always evil Jean all along when you were writing the character? Um, well, no, it was always evil gene all along. Um, because I uh, see in my mind, and this is not Marvel canon, I guarantee it, but in my mind, that Gene Gray is the Gene Gray that was banished at the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. Ah, that's the real Gene Gray. To in my <laughs> mind, that is the real original Gene Gray. So <laughs> So she awesome. comes in wherever Chad, she Chad, your entire listenership is going to go crazy now. <laughs> All your cheat stands. 
Oh my God, I I could spend five minutes talking about the craziness of all of this because there's Jean and her clone, but also the Phoenix, but also Cable and Strife and X-Men and it gets a very complicated. Right, Bob, <laughs> I, I guarantee that is not how Marvel sees it. You have so, that right is how, that's how I saw it when I was writing the character and I still see it is that that is the original Jean Grey. And I think I there's some reference in there where I, I like basically hinted at that. There's something she says where it indicates that, but... Uh, but it was very subtle because I couldn't make it too obvious because then it would just get edited out. So, <laughs> but I don't remember what it was offhand. It was a long time ago now. So, <laughs> I like the story better knowing that fact, actually. Oh, I love that so much. And in your writing on the run, it was such a vibe. It was such a great era. My only complaint is that the series ends with Nate dying and he remains dead for a very long time. Well, I was, but told, I was told to kill him. No, <laughs> Why? I mean, it, it was an open-ended death, in fairness. But so you were told oh, he, 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 he doesn't editorial mandate. He, he doesn't die. He's he's um merges he, with every living cell. He merges with everything. Yes. Yeah. So, which it's is very, why it was a little startling for me to see him come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very messianic. Yeah. Yeah. I really would have liked to see that memory palace story. It got me thinking about it. That would have been great. I'm kind, I, I of, glad, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to write it. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not glad you didn't have to write it. I wish you had write it, written it. Uh, Dayspring, do you have one more? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. We can be here all day. Uh, Steven, what a joy to hear you share these memories. Uh, huge fans, all of us, obviously. Um, I love the Age of Apocalypse. It was such a, I talked about this on the show once before. When I was picking up books live back then, this is kind of pre or early internet. The idea that they were canceling the entire X-Men line and replacing it with an alternate reality was mind blowing because you didn't know if they were gonna bring the real books back. It only lasted about four months, which is still a long time. But I remember like, mom, we have to go to the comic book shop today. They're going to put this new X-Men Alpha out. And if I don't get it, it's going to be sold out. And then there's no way to get it. Because this, you know, I couldn't jump on eBay back then very easily. Gee, I, I wonder why they did that. <laughs> For giant sales. I was very excited. So the Age of Apocalypse is fun. It's really fun. There, This is where the Dark Beast character comes from, who we'll see in this issue very briefly. Uh, there's a number of really cool versions of characters. It's, uh, it's the reality flipped on its head, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, this is a weird issue to introduce the Age of Apocalypse on. The only reason we're taking the time is that we're doing uh, Flashback Month on my show. So uh, it, to remind everybody, Flashback Month was when writers were writing the modern X-Men books. They were told to do a one issue minus one issue uh, based in pre-continuity. So you got to go way back to the beginning and also find ways to tie it into your current story. So this is an era where Nate Gray is looking so hot, drawn by Roger Cruz, and, <laughs> and uh, he's doing all sorts of things. So this issue, X-Men minus one, falls in between the Havoc Dark Beast Brotherhood story where Aurora's involved. Uh, we talked about that briefly on the Havoc trial, if you are a long-term listener. Uh, so this is written in July, 1997. Uh, the writer on this book is Terry Cavanaugh, who I've not met, but he was a Marvel editor for many years. Uh, he was a big part of the Clone Saga. He also wrote Avengers, Iron Man, All New Exiles, a whole bunch of X-Men books, uh, X-Nation. Uh, the uh, the penciler on this book is uh, Roger Cruz, whose real name is Rogerio de Cruz Corrada, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, just an incredible penciler from the 90s. Uh, he drew a lot of X-Men books. 
Inkers here are uh, Bud LaRosa and Wellington Diaz. Uh, the colorist is Mike Thomas, the letterer Richard Starkings, and the editor uh, Jay Gardner. Uh, before we delve in here to this story, which is uh, called Breeding Ground, <laughs> uh, do, uh, any any memories you'd like to share from this time, uh, Stephen, or or uh, Dave Springer, Mark's on? If you have any uh, fond memories of Flashback Month or Age of Apocalypse, I'm happy to hear them. I, I wasn't reading any Marvel books at that point in time because uh, I was off the comp lists and didn't have money to buy anything and uh, and uh, wasn't really paying that much attention to Marvel. It was kind of, I was on one of the, my periods of being on the outs with Marvel. And um, so I, I the, the first time I'd ever read the, any of this stuff was when I, uh, when you sent me the issues to read. So, <laughs> so. Marcus Hunter Dayspring, any memories you want to share before we jump in? I mean, I don't particularly remember the flashback thing. I know I read all these issues. I was really, really into X-Men at this time period. So they, and they did the flashback across like all the different Marvel titles, right? Yep, I think Thunderbolts had one, and so yeah, I remember, but I don't, I don't remember particular stories. So it was kind of cool that you sent this one, um, and because I don't remember it if I read it, uh, and it was a, you know, it was a good, good little one shot. Yeah, I I picked this up at the comic book store. I love this issue. I'm I'm living back now in Florida, and I wanted to go to my parents' place to pick up my physical copy of this, but I haven't had a chance to. I love the. I mean, spoilers for what we will discuss. I love this issue. I remember going to Outland Stations here in Miami, right across from Sunset Place. It's no longer around, and digging through. Um, the backlist and finding the minus, you know, the X Men minus, and I remember the whole minus craze, the minus one craze that happened. So this, I, I have nothing but great things and great memories from this era. So, N sixty four, double oh seven, and and oh, X Men. Yeah. It was a great and Papa John's pizza. That was, breakfast, that was a great bar. breakfast cereal and Saturday morning cartoons. It was a different yeah. time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to open this issue. The one edict they seemed to give everyone at the time was to use uh, some sort of caricature of Stan Lee to open this issue. Uh, the cover of this book, uh, you've got the flashback logo across the top. There's Mr. Sinister with a goatee, so you know he's from the Age of Apocalypse in the <laughs> upper left corner. And I don't actually love this uh, cover very much. I don't think, I really, really love Roger Cruz's pencils, but I don't think many pencilers draw children or young children very well. There's kind of a bizarre image of like a little goblin-y child uh, who has a, a, a pink cloud of messy everything around him. And there's like a cauldron bubbling up in front of him. Uh, not my favorite cover of all time. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this cover? Yeah, I thought it was a very strange cover when I looked at it. And it's 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 kind of like, it kind of leads you to think that this character is going to be the villain of the book. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really align with what's the actual content. I mean, he looks like an angry baby, <laughs> you know, like he's going to bite you or something. Like it looks like they did the cover well before they did the content. I agree on that. I mean, the only thing I can say about it is that I'm not a big fan of it either, but maybe it's like the manifestation of things go wrong, you know, with these genetic experiments and they're trying to capture that because, you know, as we will talk about, Sinister has kind of second thoughts about what he's doing and how he's doing it and how he should do it better. So I I can see that, but it still doesn't really capture what's in the issue. You know, it's it's kind of too bad that they didn't meld that concept into the story, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sinister in the comics right now, they're doing a whole event as we're recording this called Sins of Sinister, which is a, a kind of another line replacement where all the books are showing like a dark world where Sinister's out of control. Age of Apocalypse Sinister almost seems to have more of a conscience because he's left unrestrained. Uh, it's, it's an interesting version of this character. Uh, so as we open this issue, we get a one-page cutaway from Nate Gray in the modern comics. In the last issue right before this in his series, you kind of think he's dead because some poison blew up. That's basically what you're at. But if you guys look at this picture of Nate Gray floating in the sky in like shirtless and tight pants, you can see why teenage Chad, who was in the closet, might like this character a little bit. I mean, listen, I, I get it. I mean, he is he's very handsome. <laughs> Stanley rips uh, the cover open, basically, and takes on a college professor that basically says, look, there's another reality and we're going to step there for a minute. And uh, we get a, a cutaway to a an old orphanage, which I think uh, Sinister's base i think is meant to be kind of reminiscent of the orphanage where cyclops grew up in our world uh so we get kind of a cutaway to that there's a there's a, a lonely house in the middle of some farmland it's a it's a book called breeding ground uh steven if you're willing to take us through the first part of the story tell us a little bit about what happens uh well i don't have it in front of me right now but uh well, basically, Sinister gives us the spiel on what's going on with him and Apocalypse and how he's work, slowly working to rebel against Apocalypse without Apocalypse knowing, as I, as I recall, that's in that part of the story. Yes. Uh -huh. And then he starts, you know, dra then he starts opening up the chamber where he's got little Nate uh, sleeping when in his uh, protein bath and uh, and growing up quick and growing up a lot quicker than normal. And so he he lets him out and says, uh, "Okay, you be a good boy." <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what happens. The uh, this That's pretty accurate, Stephen. It's completely the accurate. Costume, the costume for Sinister here, I kind of like. It's a uh, it's like a bright red shirt. He's still got the flared cape. Uh, his legs and arms are uh, like. Dark Beast has these same pants. They went to the same place, but it's the uh, the spiraled kind of metal down the arms and legs. I like this design for Sinister. Uh, the image of Nate coming out of the protein bath makes me so genuinely uncomfortable. It's like a naked child, but he's like a little bit pin-up-y somehow. As he's like- Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's strange. I, uh, that image, again, I love Roger Cruz, but a lot of, a lot of writers when they, or a lot of uh, artists when they do children or babies, it just doesn't, it doesn't sing in the same way as the rest. Uh, but the rest of the issue is beautiful. That, that image of Sinister versus the image of uh, Nate. And we're led to believe Sinister is like growing Nate rapidly. Uh, and then like every few days he pops him out and he's like, oh, you're, you're older. You, you seem to be doing well. Your powers are coming along. And uh, he gives Nate some PJs and then Nate goes missing for a while. That's uh, that's the runaway concept we started with. Uh, uh, any any thoughts on the beginning of this book before we delve in? Yeah, I have a question. For the other minus one issues, did Stan Lee make a cameo in that? Stan Lee was in all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that was a kind of uncomfortable uh, introduction gimmick i find it quite abrasive it didn't really work <laughs> no no when i read this like oh is this gonna be a comedy what, what why does stanley look like he's crossed with albert einstein what is going on i know i mean i mean to, to take a story this is a fairly serious story and yeah. started out with hey true believers it's you know it's like it doesn't really 
connote the right tone to get you into no. the story? We've uh, we've been doing a, a lot of the flashback books on my show. Like in Generation X minus one, Stanley's dressed up as Chamber from Gen X. In Excalibur minus one, he's like a circus barker at like Nightcrawler Circus. Like uh, he 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 just makes an appearance in all of these, and it's, it's I find it quite abrasive. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, go away. Let me get to the story though. You know what this reminds me of? What they would do later on with the generations, like the young Jean and Phoenix generations, the Thors, the Captain Americas. This sort of reminds me of that vibe that they're doing at the end of a, like a really big event. Then all these characters have the spiritual journey. Obviously, this is executed a bit differently. But the one thing I didn't like about Stan Lee, <laughs> comic Stan Lee, introducing the Age of Apocalypse, he didn't really talk about it as being an alternate history to our world and that's how they came so i yeah. thought the explanation was a little too half-baked it's fine i get it I'm just you want more like a twilight here. zone introduction you know yeah. it's like you know this is another world and it's serious and yeah. you're like oh you're in for something mysterious and fun this was just kind of like you know stanley being a clown which i don't like this this was kind of this is kind of like if you already knew what he was talking about, it would be more or less okay. But it kind of presumed that whoever was reading the book already knew what he was talking about. Mm. <laughs> Which it just may, wasn't the, the major buyers of this book were probably people who were already reading already reading X Men. Like this was a uh, yeah, one probably, issue true. in a series of purchases. But yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. There is a moment, and it's a little bit like Geppetto creating Pinocchio. Like there's a moment where. Uh, Sinister gives Nate some PJs, and then he goes, you'll need a name now, I suppose, a hook to hang your identity on. Gray, after your mother, of course. Nathan Gray, I think. <laughs> the mutant pure Summer's bloodline contributed uh, your Y chromosome true, but I, for all intents, am your father. Uh, and then uh, then he has a brief like phone call with uh, Dark Beast who checks in. And this is like the real evil version of Beast before our current version of Beast in the comics. <laughs> <laughs> the best version of Beast out there. <laughs> oh, Dark Beast. <laughs> I don't remember him being gray. Was he gray back then? Yeah, and then he's like dark blue when he comes okay. to Okay, that's why I remember him being a dark blue. Yeah. Uh, uh, Spring, will you take us through the middle of the book? Tell us what happens. Yeah, so he gets a call from Dark Beast, and Dark Beast knows what's up. He's here like, hmm, I noticed that things are about like 0. .007 seconds delayed, and Sinister's hiding Nate from behind him. And Sinister is just like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. First thing in the morning, I'll check your work. And he realizes that Nate has gone missing. And he he's like, Nate, where did you go? And Nate is wandering around the orphanage. And he comes into a classroom. And I guess at this time, I mean, Nate's powers are always very nebulous. So he's able to see psychic echoes. And so he goes into this classroom and he sees a psychic echo, which happens to involve his genetic father, Scott Summers. And Scott a is there. A psychic echo, or as some brilliant writers may call it, a memory palace. A memory palace, there we go. <laughs> is that what that was? Because for some reason, for some reason, I took that to be, uh, because prior to that, um, Mr. Sinister refers to earlier versions of Nate. And given the way he works, I took that literally to be he he. This isn't the first Nate he attempted to make, and for some reason I was I saw that as an, an earlier version of him that he was watching, not as as Scott Summers. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because there's a line there because he's here like I'm I'm king of the pills or something like that, right. and they're like you, you, or king of the hill, and they're like no king of the pills means Summers, and then they're like yeah Scotty's brain damage, 
which we know Scott has brain damage given his accident with the Shi'ar. And uh, so Sinister- I've forgotten all that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> And Sinister is just walking around the orphanage. It looks like he goes through a cafeteria and he's looking for Nate. He's screaming everywhere. He's shooting around like, don't make me come after you until finally Nate appears behind him and says, sorry, I got lost. <laughs> He can talk. There, uh, this version of Sinister, uh, Sinister in the modern comics is written very comedically. This version of Sinister is written very seriously, but he's still a little comedic. And the Age of Apocalypse Sinister is way hotter than, <laughs> than our version. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on Age of Apocalypse Sinister, Dayspring? I I love Age of Apocalypse Sinister. I think in this issue in particular. When we get to the end, we can discuss it. But I think for being the creepy geneticist that he is at this time in the books, there's also a lot of heart here with him. And I think there is some kind of undertone happening here with him and his he cares for Nate as as a child. So, you know, I, I always remember Age of Apocalypse Sinister when he dies in the X-Men book, that scene where he's here like bleeding from his side and he's like, huh, I'm dying. And he just kind of collapses over and the art changes to like a beautiful meadow. So I, I love AOA Sinister. I love the design. I love the character. I The modern era Sinister is great. He's a very campy, over-the-top flamboyant scientist. I, I do miss this version of Sinister too great. Yeah, I wish him, we weren't swinging too, too far somewhere. I wish we saying, could find somewhere in the middle. Him saying to his creation, I'm your father, he's caring about something he creates, which is something our Sinister does not do. <laughs> Uh, oh, and he's got crazy anger issues because he's trying to find him, but he's kicking over chairs. He ruins the soup. He's like shooting energy projectiles. Like, this is your, where you live. What are you doing? Yeah, you're like, relax. Just turn on the security cameras. <laughs> <laughs> you have all these contingency plans for everything else, but you don't know where your kid is. Like, Any of you got kids? Any of you got kids? No. I do. If you got a little kid and you don't know where they are and... Do you think they're supposed to be someplace that they're not? That's not terribly out of the ordinary. You, uh, you don't really worry about the, con the condition of your house at that point. My <laughs> children are enormously well-behaved, but there is still from time to time moments where I am ready to shoot an energy blast across the room. And oh, be yeah, like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean I, I it, it doesn't even have to, have to do with them being ill-behaved. It's just you don't know. <laughs> That's the part. That's what triggers mm -hmm. it. <laughs> my 11-year-old my knocked on my door at 3.30 this morning to say, Dad, is it time to wake up yet? And I'm like, you are 11. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> Wait, I have a quick question. When Sinister tells Baby Nate where this sensor weave on, I thought that the clothes were supposed to help him track him. That's the one thing I I I had in my notes. I didn't quite understand. Is it was that just another way of saying pajamas back then? Yeah. Or in, in the, okay, that's how I took it. Well, that, doesn't he make a reference at some point to the Nate's psychic power is interfering with the tracking? Oh yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. Nate's clearly venturing out on his own. So Sinister's yeah. realizing how powerful he is and what he might be capable of. There you go. Uh Marcus, I'll take us through the end of the book. This this book uh does not it's pretty, but there's not a lot that happens for me. <laughs> Oh yeah, so this part it starts with this the double page spread and, and Mr. Sinister is explaining why the Age of Apocalypse sucks. And he shows Nate the gene pens um and talks about um how they're needed but won't be necessary forever. But before he can finish his speech, he and Nathan are suddenly transported to the gene pens. 
And Sinister is confused by this at first, uh, but then he quickly realizes that Nathan activated his mutant juju, and they're trapped in a psionic projection coming from the kid. Uh, Sinister seems pretty happy for a second because Nathan is everything he hoped for. He created him, and he's like, oh, he's, he's got these powers that are manifesting. But then he's like, oh, fuck, this could be really bad because his powers manifested too soon. So Sinister needs to get out of this astral child nonsense stat. And fortunately, he has a failsafe for bad Nathan, and he triggers an alpha interference frequency already keyed to the high end of Nathan's brainwave patterns. Clearly a very simple solution. Uh, Sinister's contingency plan works, and they snap back to reality. Uh, but Nathan is pissed because Daddy took away his playtime. So Sinister uses his Star Trek replicator, and he crafts a teddy bear. The ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> right? It's like red and green, right? Oh, it's really it's bad. A teddy bear it's a Christmas. like a 3D man. <laughs> yeah, it's real bad. Um, but he gets that teddy bear and he immediately stops sassing his father and cuddles it tight. So, uh, with Nathan placated, Sinister takes him to bed in his Brundlefly pod and then bids him goodnight. Uh, but then he stays up into the wee hours, pondering his experiment and whether or not he miscalculated. He's worried that the powers Nathan manifested will quickly destroy his body before he becomes an adult. And his solution is to better control his creation. And he decides he has one last chance to make the donuts right and create the perfect weapon against the Mad Butcher Apocalypse. Uh, we will not be returning to the Age of Apocalypse on my show for some time, but I'm sure we'll have conversations about it once in a while. But this was a fun dip into what the comics become later and uh, how things show up very differently. We we delved a little bit into this space when we did the uh, Uncanny X-Men minus one issue, which is all time travel and the Ascani and Cable and like craziness. Uh, so we, uh, we get to delve in. Uh, the comics become something very different in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts as we kind of wrap up our review of this issue? What was it like to read this? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, you know, I, I liked it. it. There's not a lot of substance, like you said, to it. I, I did like it. It did make me intrigued by the character and Sinister and the Age of Apocalypse, which I haven't read in a really long time. So, you know, it made me want to see what happens next, like what's going to happen with the kid. Yeah. Um, even though I've read it, but you know, I don't, when did this come out? Like 97? 97. Yeah. And I think yeah. Terry Kavanaugh's mostly trying to further the story by going back of how, uh, unrestrained Nate's powers are, what he's capable of, which is frankly kind of where you took the story later, Stephen, is, uh, this idea of the unrestrained power. And what oh, that right. Means. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think um, that's what the cover was trying to convey too. What, sure. You know, yeah. I, and at I this think... time. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Stephen, go. I, I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, it's, it was it's a story. There wasn't much story there, but it was uh, it was mostly a character piece. So in that regard, it worked fine. It made you know made you kind of interested in the characters. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, you you kind of want to see what Nate's going to be like when he uh, gets out the next time, and uh, and it's a more interest as you've pointed out. It's a more interesting Mister Sinister than I'm used to reading in recent years, and. Uh, and um yeah it's it did its job i think it's it's not the most 
compelling story in the world, but it did its job. So, Yeah, and this was written at a time where Nate was being compared to Dark Phoenix, right? Moira yeah, famously analyzed him on Muir Island, and she's here like his powers surpass that of a Dark Phoenix imbued Jean Grey. So we got to watch this kid. He's a hormonal 19-year-old. <laughs> you know, we got to make sure his powers stay in line. And I think that that's what this minus one sort of positions Nate as because he would have a couple more you know decades before you know we see where his powers will go with you Steven but I think this was definitely a sinister piece and I think it showed a lot of heart I still I love that last line where Sinister says in his dialogue tomorrow's a light you're not ready to face and you know he wants to take care of Nate he gives him a teddy bear and puts him in there again this is a sinister which at the time sinister was written as a creepy geneticist with no feelings no regard for anyone but himself and his experiments and the sinister we have today is just this over the top eccentric guy this is a, i feel like a really good balanced sinister where you see mm. some heart with him so i love the story yeah. i agree it's a great character piece i'm so happy i got to read this again yeah. with you guys i would push back a little bit on that because it feels like there was a bit of heart in it but then at the end he's just talking about him as an experiment and that he wants to control him and he wants to to make him the perfect weapon well i think it's i like of, that i think it's kind of an out of sight out of mind thing it's like when he's when nate is all packed the way he can look at him that way but when he's in front of him he starts responding to him as though he's his child mm-hmm yeah, and I like that because it makes him a little bit more complex, yeah. a little bit more rich character. Yeah, yeah. Or even the way Sinister views fatherhood. Like, I am your father. Now do as you're told. Be seen and not heard. And now go back in your bath. <laughs> more. See you in a few years for you and a day for me, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not a man who should ever be a father. Uh, what a delight. As as with every episode of this show, I'm so honored to just hang out with you guys. I will indelibly associate this character and this issue with this conversation. Uh, and Mark is on a day spring. I love hanging out with you every time. Uh, but Mike, what a, Michael, I don't know where that just came from. My apologies. Uh, Steven, I'm so honored to meet you and to hear your history and your memories today. Thank you Thank so, you. so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, where can people find each of you online? And is there anything that you would like to plug, recognizing we're putting this episode out around uh, March 20th? Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Stephen and then Marcuson and then Dayspring. Okay, uh, I am at, yes, that's Stephen Grant, uh, or actually that's Stephen Grant on uh, Netflix. Nah, not Netflix, God. Um on Twitter, Twitter, yes, that, um, let's start this over again. That's <laughs> Stephen Grant on Twitter, and uh, then just Stephen Grant on um, on Facebook, but you'll recognize me because I have a little picture with where I'm wearing a uh, Randy Savage COVID mask on the bottom of half, half of my face. So so I'm easy to find on, on Facebook that way. Uh, I don't have anything out at the moment. I have a lot of projects in process. I just finished writing a uh, miniseries for Moonstone that they that I'm sure they will publicize when when it comes up. I have uh, there's a, a movie that's waiting to shoot that's been waiting to shoot that's been waiting to shoot. I've got a TV series that's uh, being shopped around and uh, a lot of other things that I'm really not allowed to talk about. Um, 
So, uh, you know, people are so paranoid these days about people talking about anything before they get the chance to. And uh, so, uh, but otherwise, if you go to comicmix.com, you can find my, uh, the uh, Whisper Omnibuses 1 and 2 that were mentioned before, or you can get them on uh, on Amazon. And uh, yeah, you know, so that's that's pretty much, I've got lots of things going on and not a lot I can talk about, so. Totally understood. Those NDAs and the way they work. But uh, <laughs> I'm a huge fan, and I look forward to reading your upcoming stuff, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, Marzan, I know we have a uh, volume three of By the Horns coming out, but uh, uh, same questions for you. Yeah, well, first, really an honor to talk to you, Stephen. Like, I love so much Thanks. of your work. Thank you for so many great comics and, and just great media over the years. Um, yeah, you can check out uh, my website at marcusan.com. I'm Darth San on Twitter and Darth Marcusan on Instagram. Um, if you want to stay in the know about By the Horns, you can follow us on social media. Our handle is By the Horns Comic on all platforms Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, the By the Horns Kickstarter, which I mentioned earlier, is running now. We still have 25 days left already funded but we're on to the stretch goals so we're really excited about that it's running through the end of march you can just go to kickstarter and search for by the horns if you want to pledge we made an awesome like hardcover that collects the first eight issues of the series um the the next issue is coming out on the 15th of march it's by the horns dark earth number seven and uh, that's a special one to me because it's like um it's a it's part of the whole story, but it's also a one shot that focuses on our character, Evelyn. She's a floating eyeball and um, it's about her time as a slave, one of the wizards. And I kind of wrote it for all my friends who've, who felt kind of low or down or, uh, you know, just not feeling themselves sometimes. And um, so it's a really special issue uh, for me and for Jason, who, who draws the book, Jason Muir. Um, yeah, and then you can uh, listen to the Metalheads podcast on your favorite podcast app or just go to metalheadspodcast.com uh, to play the episodes. We interview uh, bands and musicians. Uh, we do top fives. We do uh, Metal Thunderdome where we pit two albums against each other and just have a really good time talking about metal. Fantastic. A uh, huge fan of By the Horns, as you know. We've had Jason on the show. Mark Stone's been on several times. I'm so uh, looking forward to what you have coming out next. It's so Thank unique you. and so beautiful. Uh, and then finally, Dayspring. Yeah. Dad, thank you so much for organizing this episode and introducing me to the man who killed Nate Gray. Even <laughs> <laughs> such a fan. Thank you so much for answering some of my thank questions. You. Let's see. Uh, we're at Power of X-Men on Instagram and YouTube. You can find the podcast on all podcast platforms. We are going to be at WonderCon at the end of the month, and we are going to be giving out these Nate Gray stickers huh. right nice, there. shiny. So find me on the con floor or one of my co-hosts. And we're also going to go to 90s Con in Connecticut, and we got invited to MCM in London, so we'll be covering those cons. We're going to cover the March 16th X-Men anniversary, 60th anniversary Zoom, so check us out when we do that. And we have some interview requests out with some of the actors from the movies and television shows, and we're trying to coordinate all that. So I can't I can't announce any of those until they're they're actually 
in. But yeah, we have a lot of great stuff coming up on the podcast, and hopefully we'll have Chad on soon to discuss AOA because we are officially reading Age of Apocalypse this season. We're just going very slowly reading it. <laughs> nice. I would be thrilled to come back on anytime, and it's so good to have you back, my friend. It's been a while. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to see you. Uh, Springs built such a beautiful community uh, online. Make sure you give them a follow, and uh, you're doing great work. Uh, lastly, I'm uh, Chad Anderson. You can uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can follow the podcast. Uh, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. We are in a whole new era of the show now that we have covered volume one of the X-Men, uh, which uh, which was such an honor. We had so much fun in the anniversary week. I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, the next several episodes on this show, I'm going to do a little quick plug. We're doing a three-part angel story from the early 1970s that's written by Jerry Siegel. It's a, it's kind of little known. It's a lot of fun. It involves his evil uncle, Dazzler. It's a three-part episode. Uh, the featured guests on each of those three parts, one is Connor Goldsmith, one is Lenore Zan, who uh, who Dayspring introduced me to, which is I'm so excited about. And then uh, we also have Stuart, uh, Stuart Moore coming on the show. Right after that, we're doing Cable Minus One with the incredible writer Charlie Jane Anders. And then we jump into X-Men The Hidden Years number one with uh, Jason Liebig, who I mentioned a little while ago uh, as our uh, our guest on that show. He was the editor of uh, The Hidden Years. Uh, so, uh, so watch out for all of that. Our next Patreon episode that we're releasing right after this is the character Cobalt Man with, uh, with the wonderful Phil Ewing. So uh, make sure to listen for that as well. Uh, Steven, Marcus on Dayspring, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.